beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in once again. We uh, we love having you guys listen to this. Um, and with the feedback that we're getting, it seems like you're enjoying what the guests that we're having on. So uh, today we we have uh, an amazing guest. But before we get to him, we have to introduce our guest host. So here we go. It's not Sean Ram. It's Jade Carling Black. Jade, how are you doing today? Good morning. I'm well. Thank you. I also should mention, uh, if you're new to this podcast, thank you for tuning in. My name is Joshua Black, and I am the regular here, and I'm doing the uh, the Grief Dreams PhD stuff research at Brock University. And so we're going to introduce our next guest, and this would be the second rabbi we've had on the show, and I'm really looking forward to talking to him. So whether a mentor, guide, cheerleader, or motivator, Rabbi Daniel Cohen possesses a unique blend of authenticity, wisdom, and spiritual insight for contemporary society. Rabbi Cohen has served for over 20 years and currently serves as senior rabbi at Congregation Agudath Shalom, hopefully hopefully I said that right, in Stanford CT, the largest modern Orthodox synagogue in New England. He is also the host with Reverend Greg Dahl of the nationally syndicated radio show, The Rabbi and the Reverend, Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. and evenings at 9 p.m. He speaks frequently on leading a life of legacy and is the author of the new book, What Will They Say About You When You're Gone? Creating a Life of Legacy. So, Rabbi Daniel Cohen, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank God I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. How are you? I'm doing well. Yes, it's just it's a busy time. I'm just uh, trying to finish my uh, my dissertation. And so you're at that you're finally seeing that finish line um, and seeing what doors God will open for you after it's all yeah. said and done. And so that's, that's going to be an amazing, amazing moment. And I'm guessing in your life, you've had these moments where uh, you saw the finish line and then these doors open. So how did you how did you get to becoming a rabbi? And like, what's that journey like? Is it you just, you know, go for, you, do you go to school for a couple of years? Do you have to be, you know, like, what, what is all that about? Well, when I first opened up my eyes as a baby, I said, I want to be a rabbi. Mm. You knew right away. Wow. <laughs> like rabbi. Just kidding. That was your first words. Rabbi. That was it. <laughs> my mother tells me it was actually cookie. But anyway, um, <laughs> So I'll tell you, I mean, you're asking a good question. I'll give you the technical part of becoming a rabbi, then I'll give you a little more of the spiritual side. So grew up in a home that was certainly uh, deeply committed to uh, the faith, to Judaism, Jewish education. So becoming a rabbi and studying for it wasn't something that was totally uh, tangential to my uh, elementary school learning, my high school learning. But then I did choose to spend a year in Israel, went to college at Yeshiva University, which is a school in New York with a dual curriculum where half a day I'm studying Judaic studies and then half a day general studies, majored in English at the time. And then officially to become a rabbi, it was another four years of studying Jewish law, Jewish philosophy, um, and a host of other things as well. Um, So I would say in total, it's around six, seven years of uh, studying to become a rabbi. Um, Probably the more important question, though, is, you know, you don't become a rabbi, um, you know, just to accumulate knowledge. It's really to make a difference in the world. And I always felt that I wanted to be uh, knowledgeable in these areas. But when I was in college, I would say I credit a little bit with um, a knock that I got on the door when I was a sophomore in college. A guy comes into my room and says, would you like to help uh, Jewish teens and youth work in New England and go on weekends and try to motivate and connect with them? And I'd never done that before, but I felt when I started doing a lot of life satisfaction in that role, um, and that coupled with the fact that um, I grew up in a home that was deeply committed not only to Jewish knowledge, but learning and teaching and feeling a strong sense of responsibility. And I would say the combination of both my upbringing as well as some of my extracurricular activities in college in a greater sense that you know, I had certain... Uh, not only desires, but talents to take my love and my passion and help try to influence others really moved me in the direction of becoming a rabbi. And then early on, I was debating whether to go into Jewish education or the rabbinate. So I taught in a Jewish day school, and then I worked in a synagogue, and I just felt a lot more um, fulfillment working with adults and doing a lot of Jewish outreach. So that's a little bit of the uh, journey there. 
Wow, it's interesting. I didn't know any of that, and especially the the education you need to actually become a rabbi. And so what's it like? Like, so you've done your education, right? You get that certificate, and then now you're part of the rabbi in it. And so what's wow. that like? What's that first experience like? Is it like nerve wracking? Um, like I would say, yourself? you know, sometimes the truth is, is that you don't really know what you're getting into, I think, in any profession until you're actually on the ground. I mean, you know, somebody could be trained to become a doctor or lawyer or, or counselor, whatever it is. But, you know, there's the world of theory and then there's the world of reality. So I was fortunate that when I first started out, my wife and I had just gotten married and I took a position, which I recommend, I think, in any field. I was an assistant rabbi. So I had an older mentor who guided me, who took me places. And it wasn't like I had my feet to the fire right away. For four years, I was really learning a little bit on the job and had somebody to bounce ideas off of. And then I went to my first position. It was actually up in West Hartford, Connecticut. This was in the mid-90s, a small synagogue there. And also, you know, you're always learning. I mean, you never finish it. As one of my mentors said, once I got that certificate, it was now a license for me to really continue studying. I mean, anybody that thinks that you've done all your studying and then you're just kind of doing your work, you'll never grow that way. So, you know, I'm always meeting new people. And I would say, My rabbinate consists of a lot of foundational work that any clergy person would do, which is the pastoral support, the giving sermons, the organizational piece. You know, rabbi, like a pastor, is in many ways a uh, CEO, and there's a lot of administrative things, and you're developing programming and connecting. um, But I would say what really drives me is the ability to help people realize their divine potential in life, to really develop strong relationships, to be there, to give them comfort, strength, and inspiration, and to build bridges to really be a person to help network people and across the faiths and help people build a community in a city of greater kindness and God's presence. That was a lot of information, but wow. I, yeah, I threw a lot out there at you, but I really enjoy yeah. what I do, and I have to thank my wife. Thank God she's a real partner with me, and we have, thank God, six daughters, which is fantastic. Wow. Amazing. Six so daughters. They, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Very blessed. And actually, my oldest daughter just got married a few years ago. A few years ago. A few months ago. So I got a son now. It's very exciting. Wow. Amazing. Well, it sounds like you're super enthusiastic about the work you do. And, you know, just just helping people seems like it's at the the center of it all. And that you obviously get a lot of reward from, from doing that. So... I was just curious, what is the, aside from the administrative stuff and, and everything, people obviously use you, utilize you as, you know, a confidant and somebody to express whatever they're going through. And so I'm just curious, what is the most common issue that people have in their life that they, that they bring to you? A theme um, or? That's a great question. <laughs> I would say that, well, there's a number of different things. I find that after, I mean, it's already been 10 years, but after 2008, 2009 with the economic crisis, there are definitely more people that are trying to find positions, really struggling sometimes with living in a world where we define ourselves a lot by what we do, our profession, but really then thinking, well, if I'm not continuing my job in my profession, who am I? How can I reinvent myself and find another way to give back? And I think that's an area where I try to help people and also then through the network that I have, introduce them to other people that can help them. I'm a big believer in We're all here for a reason, and if I have access to somebody who can help somebody else, I want to introduce them to each other. That's a big piece. I would say also trying to, you know, there are issues with parents and children or in relationships and trying to navigate those and make peace in homes. Certainly that's a piece of it, you know, giving people counsel after losses in their life, you know, helping them, you know, not think about what am I going to do a year from now, but how am I going to get through the day and giving me that sense of, comfort and strength. And I would say the other piece that I spend a lot of time on is really trying to help people identify. And I'll have coffees with people and say, what are you passionate about? And how can we help you channel that through the synagogue to make the world a better place? Everybody has some unique gift and passion. And it's not only about coming to a synagogue and just showing up and going to a program or coming to services, but I want them to feel invested in our mission. And I can't do that unless I help them think a little about what are their God-given talents. Everyone is creating God's image, has something special. And, you know, I'll give you an example. There was a woman who loves art. So 
as a result of that conversation, we decided to do a paint night with young couples, and she chaired it and wanted to find a way to bring that to other people. Or another person loves to play music, so I told her I go once a month to a senior living facility to do a Sabbath service with them. So I said, how would you like to come with me and play the music to help enrich the lives of the seniors that are there? So those things make people feel good and and, and, and give back. So I, I spend a lot of time trying to help unlock that in people. Amazing. And I'm hearing a lot of things around, um, you know, identity and stuff when you're saying people finding their purpose and, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on who are you with or without a job or career or, you know, whatever your vocation is, there's a lot of importance on that. And so I think just, you know, it's really cool that you, you dedicate some time in going a little bit deeper than just, you know, what is your, your job or your career from like a social standpoint and, and more just helping people connect with the idea of purpose and yep. the power and staying power that, 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 that has in in people's lives because you know people can just have have jobs but if it's not really or careers or whatever it is but if it's not really you know connected to a, a passion it's it's ability to satisfy for the long term is is diminished by the way what you're saying is really wise right now it's true yeah. Yeah. i mean you're actually very intuitive i like that a lot and i just want to reflect on it a little bit i mean somebody said to me recently um, who I've talked to pretty frequently, they said, I'll always remember what you told me at this time. I said, remind me what I told you. And they said, well, you once said to me, it's always important to remember we're not our roles, but we're our souls. Okay. Not our roles, but we're our souls. And again, we're living in a world where we're defining people by their roles. You know, when you say to somebody, what do you do? The That's the first question be, you ask somebody. <laughs> yeah, and the truth is, you know, when you meet actually, somebody and and they say like, "What do you do for a living?" Right, as if that's or yeah, and you know. it's interesting because somebody recently told me who's from Europe. They said in Europe, if you ask somebody that question, particularly in Italy, they said, "I don't want to know what you do. I just want to talk about who you are." Absolutely. And literally, the culture there is like, "I do not want to hear anything about your job when we're getting together. I just want to know about you, about your family, about what your interests are." about what's going on in your life. And that's so important, especially I think in our country here, people are hungry to be known and live their lives more, not by what they do. And it's not, what do you do? You're an accountant. What do you do? I try to make the world a better place. Wouldn't it be great if like everyone answered the question that way? Absolutely. Or just share even their, you know, what they're currently struggling with or, Correct. you know, their, their emotional adventures or just, you know, all all that stuff. Those are the conversations that are the best in my life when I can connect with people about those things. Because I'm, you know, I I really relate to that Italian culture. I guess when I meet people, I'm I'm not fascinated by what people do. I mean, it's a facet of their personality and all that. All that is great, and to be doing stuff and being active and putting your drop in a bucket, all that is amazing. But just when you're connected, I think with a more spiritual plane, then those things mm-hmm. become less and less significant because at the end of the day I I'm in a position where I have an understanding that ultimately God's not really going to care if I was an accountant or a school teacher or a bus driver it's going to be how I'm doing those roles yep perfect no that's 100% correct and you said also a few moments ago that you gain and I think about this a lot person gains renewable energy and motivation when they know they're living for a higher purpose you know, it's all about them. You get tired, but it says in the book of Isaiah, those who have faith in God, their strength will be renewed. They'll grow wings like eagles. They'll run and not walk. And I do find, and I think we all do, that when we're living for something higher for others, we do really feel a newer sense of purpose every day, you know, and that gives us renewed energy. Absolutely. In fact, I think I know somebody that has that exact scripture tattooed on them as a, as really? a tribute to it. To their life, I do, and I think he's on this podcast. <laughs> yes, it's me. <laughs> oh, you have wait a second, That's Joshua. Funny. You have that tattooed on you. Yeah, Who's yeah. That? Brings oh back gosh. good memories. I had no idea. That is amazing. Do you have any other verses, or that's the only one? That's the only one right now. And it's funny, like just we haven't really talked about tattoos yet, but uh, just for <laughs> listeners, <laughs> uh, one of the reasons <laughs> I got the tattoo more than the meaning of it was because I was judging people that had tattoos. 
And so like, I grew up in a family where if you had a tattoo, you're bad or evil or whatnot. And so I needed to break that model. So the best way to do that was for me to get my own tattoo. <laughs> and then, it's funny when my mom said it's on my it's back. On yeah, it's, it's funny when I, when I showed my mom, she's like, oh, no. <laughs> <She's> like, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what's crazy? It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture of an eagle. And it has, and it has, a, it's a, it's a beautiful tattoo. Just as a side note, I think it's amazing. And that's your you own little journey. Send me a picture sometime. That's yeah, funny. you should. <laughs> but well, that's a good but, verse. I got a question for you. How did you choose that verse? There's a lot of verses out there. So what made you choose yeah. that one? I think because for me, it represents sort of uh, trust and surrender and to find meaning. And that's what meaning, as you say, what it, meaning does to you in your life is, is when you surrender to something bigger than yourself, it mm -hmm. takes you above any kind of storm. It lets you go farther. It gives you that extra energy you need to finish um, what, you, mm -hmm. what your desires are. And so I think that's what really captivated me on that. And it's a simple quote, and I love eagles too. So it was like it all like came together. Wow, that's great. Do you have any uh, tattoos, Rabbi? <laughs> you know what? According to Jewish law, I love these questions. Then we'll ask Jade. Um, actually, according to Jewish law, you're not supposed to tattoo your body. So no tattoos. I knew that. I have a lot of stuff engraved on my soul, as we all do. But the idea Beautiful. is not to take your... Um, maim your body in that way. I don't say maim, obviously, but within Jewish faith, we don't do that. But, uh, but look, I mean, thank God that's what you have, you know, as opposed to there are some tattoos that you really regret, you know, pictures of stuff. Yes. And, yes. So that's good. Um, I do not have any yes. tattoos that I regret. I enjoy all of them and I'm proud of all of them and they all mean something to me. So that's... That's good. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew we talk about tattoos today? I know. How did we get here? That's funny. So I have strength in the Lord. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to actually find a little bit more about you in the sense of, so when you deal with so many issues and you hear about people, what's the most surprising thing you've learned from people through your journey? Most surprising thing? Wow. Um, I would say... I mean, I'm a person, I mean, this is, I guess, why I'm a rabbi a little bit. I'm very, I'm an optimistic person, always looking for the good in people. And, you know, I many times will just assume, and that's just who I am. I try to assume the best in people. And sometimes when I find out, let's say, that somebody may have said something or do something, I like have a double take and I say, did they really say that or do that? I just can't imagine they would do something like that. And sometimes, it's, unfortunately, it's in the negative realm. It's not like I have a lot of these surprises, thank God. But I'm just a generally more um, optimistic and positive and looking for the best in people, which sometimes creates a weakness to a degree because I'm a little blinded in that way. And that's why it's important for me, as we all need, which are partners and people to work with and, you know, to talk to, um, to help us see around our blind spots and stuff like that and go into situations with our eyes wide open. You know, I'm in a position where I have to make decisions about whether it's policy or programming or how things are going to be heard and how things are going to be rolled out and just really trying to, it says in Ethics of Our Fathers, one is wise who sees the future. Now, that doesn't mean seeing the future like you can predict what the market's going to do tomorrow or what's going to happen in the horse race, but really anticipating the ramifications of decisions that we make. And sometimes we need other people to help us see all the possibilities because we may not always see everything uh, as clearly and as whole as we should. Absolutely. That really resonates with me, I think, as well. And I think not in like a threatening sense, but to just, yeah. you need to be aware of the, you know, every action has a reaction, every decision has an, uh, a consequence. And I think sometimes we can't always see, you know, exactly what you said, the ramifications of of who we are and who we choose to be in the world and how we how we choose to interact with other people and the decisions that we make i think it's it goes a long way to have people around you to support and 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 bring clarity to you because mm -hmm. you know my some of my best relationships are those that the people that can help help me take my rose colored glasses off or my blinders off and right see things exactly for what they are and say, okay, you really need to look at this from this perspective. And then if you want to go ahead and do whatever it is you're going to do, then fine, but don't say you didn't know kind of thing. So yep. um, just that awareness 
is important. Yeah, I, I enjoy that side of you too, because a lot of people are on the opposite side, right? They don't trust the world. They don't trust other people. And so it's almost now you have to teach them that, you know, people can be good and be nice. And, you know, like you don't always have to be afraid of people, right? You're just very loving and caring and, you know, you, you trust people. And I think that's an amazing um, journey that you've been on to allow yourself to get there. Because usually most people I've met along the way, it's sort of the opposite. Yeah, no, it's true. That's true. And uh, that's part of the thing I mean, I enjoy about the rabbit. Most of my time is spent just with people. I mean, obviously, I do my studying and my writing, but it's just really interacting and helping people. So uh, it's a real blessing. Amazing. Amazing. So let's, so let's uh, talk about I'm, the book. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's sure, let's thinking. talk about the book. Sounds good. So I'll share with you a little bit the premise of the book and give you a sense so we can go from there. So the premise of the book is you're at a funeral. And as you walk out of the funeral, you have a moment when you say to yourself, I hope they speak about me the way they spoke about that person. Regardless of your faith, you feel you want to do more with life and you're inspired by the life of the person that you heard. And then you're motivated for about 15 minutes until you get a distraction, you get an email, you get a text, and then you go back to life as usual. And the concept behind the book, it's called, What Will They Say About You When You're Gone? You identify the life that you want to lead, your best self. And then I take you on a journey of seven principles for reverse engineering your life so you lead the life now for how you want to be remembered. And the journey really behind the book is to say, you know, live every day with that sense of awakening. As somebody shared with me, I was meeting with um, one of the people I interviewed for the book is Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And I said to him, wouldn't it be wonderful if our country lived as if it was always September 12th. Nobody wants to repeat September 11th. But on September 12th, people really thought about what was truly important in their lives, their families. They put what was urgent behind them and focused on what was important. And life is not meant to be lived as a highlight film. You know, I get sick, and oh, and then I get serious about life, or I have this brush with mortality, and then I get focused. But every day is infused with infinite potential and meaning. And the idea behind the book is to help people lead their lives with that higher sense of frequency so their relationships are enriched and they really reveal the potential not only in themselves, but in every encounter that they have every day. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think it's something, you're right, we take for granted a lot when we go to the funerals or we, and we, we have those questions that pop up in our heads. But you're right, like the next day you're watching TV or whatever, completely forget about the whole thing and you deny that the question even existed. And so my question when it comes to, I was thinking about this and legacy, is it you want to be seen to others or is it how others, how you want others to perceive you? You know, like, is it, am I worried really, about, yeah, like the other person yeah, so or I is would, it about me? It's a combination of the two. I mean, the question that I ask at the beginning of the book, uh, you know, what will they say about you when you're gone and the questions that go with it, it's not about an ego thing and, you know, it's not about, oh, what are they going to say about me? alone, but it's really a trigger to take a moment to reflect on the fact that we are here for a higher purpose and everything that we do, you know, we are to a certain degree, I believe this strongly, we're God's ambassadors in the world. God gives us a soul and that soul is to help really share the light that's inside of us. And we oftentimes get in these modes where we're just going through life, surviving, just making ends meet, running from here to there. But the question is, are we really realizing um, our best selves? So one of the questions I'll ask people is, if you had five words to write on your tombstone, what would they be? Now, I don't see that as a haunting question or depressing. I see it as a question that could lead to great inspiration. You know, I recently saw a little plaque. It was actually at a synagogue. It was in memory of somebody. And the two words on that plaque were describing this person. It said, everybody's friend. Now, do you know how many small decisions, interactions we have every day? And the question is, are we behaving in a way in which we're everybody's friend? And people know us that way, not because I need the glory, but that's really the kind of person we all want to be. You know, when you say about somebody, he was a person you could always count on. I think we all want to be known that way. When we promise things to people, we'll get back to them right away. Or somebody people can trust. 
You know, it's great when you know somebody, someone that they were kind or authentic. And these questions, again, it's not about what will they say as much as it's a way to serve as a wake-up call on a regular basis to say, hey, this is what I'm all about. And if I want to be somebody, and I want to be somebody who really, their word is gold, and I need to make sure that I'm really careful about what I say and what I do and the promises that I keep. Right. Interesting. I, like that, parts of that resonate with me, but then the other half of me feels like, and I only say this because there's been certain times in in my life that this conversation has, has provoked me to reflect on where I felt like I've been the most aligned with my higher power, what I consider, you know, God to be. But I but mm-hmm. others would view that as like they might not approve of those decisions because they weren't in line with their own ideas of who I am or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So sometimes it's I, I have found that there's a, a little bit of a conflict between making decisions. So I might not be everybody's friend, but in my, uh, you know, uh, there's been certain points in my life where I'm not everybody's friend, but I know that I'm doing. And by the way, I, I think that's doing. a great point. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like other people will be looking at me saying, you know, she's made decisions that I don't approve of or whatever, but I'm doing things that I know in my heart are really necessary for my spiritual moving forward. Yep. Well, so, I, think, you know, I mean, and they're going to view me through their own glasses, right? So, um, you know, when I'm hearing you talk about legacy and, and how others see me, I think that's important, but I think how I see myself is the most important. And I think when I can see myself with through eyes of approval, then eventually everybody else has to. And friend just has a kind of, um, I mean, yeah, I want to be liked by everybody and I want to be everybody's friend, you know, like how you said. But in the same breath, there's, I don't know, I struggle with that idea because it's not really, for me anyway, not about being it's everybody's kind of, friend. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so by the way, I hear your ambivalence and I think I'll share something with you that I think helps clarify. Because by the way, I'm not necessarily everybody's friend, you know. Let's take a step back for a minute. You I know, mean, I try to respect people, and I get I get that aspect. Of it. I want to I think treat different. people with kindness and respect, but I I want to live my truth as as well. And I also, yeah, and I'm at, at, I think it's important not to get hung up on that too, because the truth is there are some people where it's good to distance yourself from them in terms of strong associations because they bring you down, or they might be right. a negative influence. And I think you know when I was saying everybody's friend, I think in the broadest sense, it's more being a kind person as mm-hmm. opposed to you can't be everybody's friend because there are some associations that are good and mm-hmm. some where you need that to disassociate yourself because it's not a good thing. And I think the other piece that's important is at the end of the day, and my father reminds me of this a lot too when I was growing up, the name that you're given is in many ways a important reminder of who we are. In the Jewish faith, when a parent names a child, we believe there's a bit of divine inspiration. And the name is meant to be Again, part of who you are. So my Hebrew name is Daniel, which means, or Daniel, which means God is my judge. And my family would always say to me, my dad and mom, they said, look, what's most important is your, what you're doing in God's eyes. You know, it's kind of like what you're saying. It's not about everybody's approval. You know, like there are, right. we oftentimes are in situations where the world may be telling us to do one thing. But yes. we know we need to do something else and walk that's to our right. own drummer and be alone, yeah. and it's a lonely road. And that's positive. That's what you need to do. As long as you know that what you're doing is true to who you are and right in God's eyes the way you see it to that higher power, yeah. then that's the way you need your you lead your life. And I've been in situations as a rabbi, in the rabbi where I've had to draw on that inner strength when peers or other people may be pressuring me to do certain things, but I know that's yeah, not what I Yeah, or don't understand do. the road that you're don't walking. Don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's really a part of what it means to lead a life of legacy, is to be true to oneself and also know that if in God's eyes, you know, and that's who I am and that's what God wants me to do, even if the world is not saying that, that's what I need to do. And one other point is that the very foundations, at least within the Jewish faith, were reminded of this. It says Abraham was an iconoclast. He was unique. The entire world was worshiping idols and sacrificing children to their gods and doing all sorts of other immoral things. And he literally was a man 
with his wife, Sarah, that stood alone. And God said to him, and he had the strength to say, you know what? The majority in these cases is always right. If you know that what you're doing in God's eyes, you need to have the courage to stand alone. And he could have given up, but because he had that faith and strength, you know, he transformed the world and brought a message and many faiths about trying to create a world of, of ethical monotheism. So uh, I'm with you on that. Very I think cool. it, Yeah, and I think uh, what you're talking about too, which leads, I'm guessing you might talk about this in your book, but courage, because when you're talking about Abraham or even Daniel, uh, and you got thrown into the lion's den, you know, it's like sticking up for your truth on what your legacy, what you want to leave in this world. Um, it would take a lot of courage because there is a, a huge other voice that's trying to pull you to walk their truth, um, not your own. Yep. Yeah, I reflect on that um, a lot, actually. There's a chapter in the book called Courageous Choices. Cool. And um, yeah, I think you'd like that I, one, Jade. Yeah, I, I can't wait to read the book now. I'm excited. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and the question that I explore there, you know, I call it the... Um, the Warren Buffett and King Solomon wisdom. You know, you never thought you'd hear them two together. So Warren Buffett says it takes 20 years to build a reputation. It takes five minutes to destroy a reputation. And the notion being that, you know, in every action that we do, every choice that we make, you know, we're really making a choice about the kind of person that we want to be. And King Solomon says that, who said, better to have a good name than all the wealth in the world. In other words, are the choices that we're making reflective of pressure or principle? Are they reflective of convenience or of conviction? And the question I explore in that chapter is how do we develop the moral fortitude to make those courageous choices, to fight for values that we believe in, even sometimes at risk of other things, because that's the values that we believe in. And it's not always easy. You know, we live in a world that oftentimes our actions are determined by external regulation, when at the end of the day, they should be determined by the inner motivation to do the right thing. So that's like a major piece of what I see as leading a life of legacy. So, yeah, and it comes up a lot. I mean, go ahead. No, go ahead and finish. I was going to give you some some story. I mean, yeah, just like, you know, it's interesting. Um, a number of years ago, this was at the Summer Olympics, um, there was a front page story in the New York Times about something called the dolphin kick that swimmers would do, and it was illegal, and they would be caught. The problem is that the referees were not able to see whether or not people were doing the dolphin kick for the first second or two when people started the race, when they came right off the, uh, the side of the pool. So they asked the swimmers, they said, if you know you're not going to be caught, do you still do the dolphin kick? So a number of swimmers and requested anonymity, they said, look, if everybody's doing it, of course we're going to do it. And another swimmer who won a bronze medal, his name is Brendan Hansen, he said, you know, that's not what I do. That's not what I was born to do. And even if nobody's looking, I know that whatever decision I make, I'm going to have to live with it for the rest of my life. Absolutely. And that's really an important ideal to live by. You know, one of the greatest examples of this in the Bible, and I talk about this, was Joseph. You familiar with the story of Joseph? I think so. He's the guy that did the dream stuff, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, he definitely did the dream stuff. But what people, very good. I mean, you guys are like, yeah. we're talking right now on your show. I feel like I'm on Bible 501. This is good. <laughs> and this is the Grief Dreams Podcast. Just reminding Oh, everybody. thanks for reminding me of that. Okay, that's good. Um, <laughs> we'll get to the dreams in a few minutes. But let me tell you the sure. story of Joseph, okay? So Joseph, actually, there's a moment when what defines Joseph for posterity? It's a decision that he makes when nobody's looking. Joseph is in the house of Potiphar, who he's working with um, when he's recovered from being thrown in the pit. This is before the dreams. And Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. And Joseph was a really good-looking guy. He's one of the few people in the Bible where it says that he was really, really good-looking. All the women were fawning over him. And the boss's wife comes in and says, Joseph, sleep with me. Joseph, sleep with me. And the Bible says that Joseph refused day in and day out. He said, I'm not going to sleep with you. He knew it wasn't the right thing to do. Until one day, nobody's home, and Joseph's, and, and, and Potiphar's wife comes and says, I want to sleep with you. 
And finally it says in that moment, he really is questioning himself. And he says, do I sleep with her? Do I not? Do I sleep with her? He's really not sure. And then he makes a decision not to sleep with her. And what prevents him from doing this? It says that he sees the image of his father in the window. And he realizes he can't do it. And many of the commentators say, wait a second, if you're about to sleep with a woman, and all of a sudden your dad knocks on the door and says, son, what are you doing in there? I think most people are not going to say, hey, dad, stay out. I'm busy right now. <laughs> right. They're going to like stop. And the question is, what was so great about what he did? And here's the point. The point was that in the moment of moral confusion, Joseph was able to conjure up the image of his father. And he knew that no action that he did was private, but whatever he did would reflect on his past and reverberate into the future. Most, I would say, scandals today and things that people do that are more out of expedience as opposed to doing the right thing, is people think, well, nobody's going to know, nobody's looking, what can I get away with? But at the end of the day, we all are models, and we do make decisions that reflect on our families and reflect on our future. And recognizing that we're not independent, but we're part of this kind of larger enterprise of being good people and bringing, you know, a sense of ethics to the world. And we're models of that, the more that I think it holds us true to being the best person that we can be. So cool. I love, I love that stuff. All that super, super resonates with me. And, you know, just talking about Joseph, I, I mean, I know about Joseph, but I didn't know about seeing his father's image in the mirror but it immediately pulls up i'm super into like uh hinduism and stuff and in the ramayana which is like um, a hindu text sita one of the characters in there it that story reminds me of her purity and she had the same opportunity to you know be intimate with with this other character in the, in the book and she refused and no one was watching and it was kind of along the same line so a lot of parallels there and so i just think Mm -hmm. it's cool that in you know that that kind of theme comes up the the idea of morality and and yeah what we do when nobody's watching and who has to pay the cost for the decisions that we make even if we feel like it'll never get out and you know um like I'm a life coach, so in my practice, when I work with my clients, I, I always, I'm continually expressing to them, don't make any decisions that you're not proud of and don't make any decisions that you're going to feel uncomfortable either owning them in your truth, looking at yourself in the mirror. Like, don't do anything that you can't stand by because the cost for that becomes far too 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 high down the road. So how, how yep. important it is to live with that integrity and um, even in moments of, you know, weakness. So, and that's easier said than done because sometimes, you know, when the weight of the world and confusion, like you said, it's, it's it can be seemingly easy to go the other way. Yep. But I think having having in, in integrity is so important and something that we can really pride um, ourselves on is making decisions that reflect who we want to be in the world. It's actually very, very empowering. So cool yeah, example, so sure. cool story. Love it. Love it so much. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> so so can we talk about dreams now? You want no. to talk about dreams? Wait, sure. hold on. Let's go back. Let's go back. You're, still... <laughs> You're like, wait. <laughs> wait a second. I want to actually just ask a question about the legacy stuff. Like, What actually got you started into caring about yours and other people's legacy? Like, Was there like a moment in time that like brought it up? I would say it was a combination of factors. On a professional uh, level, I would say, well, a couple quick things. As a rabbi, I unfortunately, uh, and I find it very much a privilege, I'm with people in times of loss and thinking about issues of legacy. I've done hundreds of funerals and sitting with families for you know, 45 minutes an hour and saying to them, tell me about your mother or father's life it's a very powerful tool for distilling the essence of what a life is all about. So that was a piece of it. But I would say that, you know, on a very personal level, when my uh, mom passed away, I mean, that was really, I would say, obviously changed my whole life. My mom passed away from a brain aneurysm when she was 44 years old. And uh, our entire life was turned upside down. I'm not only the father of six kids, but also um, of one of six. I was down on vacation 
we got a call. My mother had a brain aneurysm, a second one, and then she passed away. And really from that moment, um, I really had a deeper sense that life can change in an instant and to think about life in a different way. And I live with that, of course, and think about my mom all the time. But then when I entered into my 40s, this is, I would say, where the journey for the book began, I realized that I'm now at the same age that my mother was when she passed away. And I began to think much more deeply about what it means to lead a life of significance. And in a positive way, I mean, my mother was always very upbeat and my father, he should live and be well. They always gave me a sense growing up that life had purpose and I should accomplish stuff and not waste time. But I would say the confluence of professionally where I was at, my own getting older, all these things kind of led to thinking about my own life in a way. And then I guess the other little piece of it was I went to a conference in my um, mid-40s where it was a bunch of rabbis and other people from across the country. And they said to us, we want you to go upstairs into the hotel room by yourself for around three hours. And we want you to put together a graphic illustration of your life in the past and where you want to be 10 years from now. And for me, that was an amazing gift because I really began to think deeply about the kind of blessing and influence I wanted to have. And it really led to this deep exploration, not only of my own life of legacy, but how can I help other people craft a strategy for leading a life of legacy? Because I do believe, and this is part of the book too, that I am not trying to impose something from outside on anybody. I'm just trying to help people discover what's inside every single human being. And every single human being wants meaning, wants significance, wants to make a difference, wants to realize their potential. But we oftentimes don't hear that inner voice and we get distracted. So I'm just trying to help people unlock, reveal um, the light that's inside of them. So that's kind of where the book came about. Wow, that's interesting. Um, you know, sorry to hear about your mom passing um, at such a, a early age. Was is your dad still around now? Yeah, thank God. My father actually remarried a few years later, and he um, got remarried, and he lives in um, uh, Jerusalem. Actually, he moved to Israel uh, a number of years ago. Uh, so thank God he's doing really uh, well. Oh, that's yeah, amazing. I think it's about good my to mom hear. a lot. My mom is with me all the time. Uh, so it's your your mom knocking on the door, not your dad. <laughs> yeah, they're both knocking on the door, and I'm trying to knock on my kids' doors. You know, that's right. I'll be knocking so on actually... your door soon, but you seem like a holy guy. Ah, oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah, I know. If you I ever to need a by. reminder yeah. about, well, I was gonna say, if I ever need to think about, I will never. I just have to say this to you. I will never think of that verse in Isaiah the same way ever again. Wow. I'll know that's it's meaningful. on somebody's back. Wow, yeah. And I'm a dreamer, so uh, now... Uh, and you're a dreamer. <laughs> <yeah>. Okay. <laughs> so I do have one question, actually, about um, how did you see your mom's legacy in your eyes? I saw my mom's legacy as, I mean, a number of different things. She was a person who was very accepting and understanding of people. I mean, we. she really also was somebody who saw the good in people's eyes. And you know, it hit home a number of years ago. I was speaking somewhere, and the guy who was introducing me had spent some time in Atlanta, which is my hometown. And he said to me in the intro, he said, I visited Atlanta after your mom passed away. And your mom's name came up. And I said to the individual, This is what this person is saying. I said, Tell me about Sandra Cohen. Sandy Cohen was my mom's name. And the person said to me, Sandy Cohen was somebody who, whenever you spoke to her, she always made you feel good about yourself. And to me, I think about that. My mom like, was somebody who really helped find and help people see the light in themselves. We had a lot of people come in and out of our house. Both my parents were educators, people of different backgrounds. And my mom was a math teacher and a good friend to people involved in a lot of volunteer stuff and just a very warm person. And she made people feel good. And I think about that, too. She raised us with a real sense of, um, of joy in our faith. I think it's part of why I became a rabbi. I never saw either the holidays or the rituals, like it was a burden. My mom would say to me, I just said this a couple of days ago, like I'm a big believer in reframing and that no action that we do if done for the service of others or for God should be minimized. So my mother would always say when it was garbage time, 
we took out the garbage twice a week in Atlanta, she'd say, you're not taking out the garbage. You're fulfilling the commandment of honoring your mother and father. <laughs> and I have to say that it wasn't like I was so motivated as a teenager, <laughs> but she was still telling me, you know what, you're doing holy work. And actually, it's funny, I shared that with the superintendent at our um, synagogue just a couple of days ago. I said, I want you to know, and he's coming in to take out the garbage. I said, you're doing holy work. You're helping make this a holier place. And he said, you know what, I believe it. And I said, I'm just grateful for everything that you do. We're all here in the service of God. So that was another big part of my mom's legacy. Wow. Wow, she seems like an amazing, or is an amazing person in the sense that like, what she was instilling in you as a child was that everything you do is meaningful, you know? Um, yes, yeah. And you don't get that a lot. No. No, you know, and the truth is, unfortunately, um, we give meaning to the wrong things. And we, you know, encourage sometimes people to pursue things that are what I call counterfeit pleasures, but not things that really give us meaning. We think they may give us meaning, um, but they may give us like a burst of like happiness for a minute. But I can have the greatest meal in the world, um, but the next morning I'm wondering, okay, I may have to like now go exercise, but if I did something nice for somebody else, that joy is going to be eternal. All good thoughts and things to consider moving forward with the rest of the week. And I think it's, everything has meaning. I like that idea of doing things with joy and with purpose because a lot of times we think bringing out the trash or or doing the dishes or or whatever it is, it is a way to honor your family and and to contribute. And I know in like Buddhism and stuff, they say like, you know, be be present when you're washing your dishes. Like do it as if you're doing it for God. Not like, oh God, I have to wash these dishes, but more of of a place of (laughs) I have dishes. Uh, you know what I mean? I'm, they were obviously dirty, yeah. so I ate food off these dishes. And, yeah. you know, there's yeah. just a flip of, of perspective. So just finding meaning in the mundane and um, yeah, really pulling on those simple things and finding joy in them, which a lot of people say, how can I find joy in bringing out the garbage or vacuuming my home? And, you know, I always say to people, like, you have a home to vacuum, so that's something. Right. Right. I think also I guess, the second. I like that. You're good. I mean, I think the other piece, which is something I talk about in the book, if you have a, another quick couple minutes, is the other chapter. Another one is called "Discovering Your Elijah Moment," and it's related to what I call the standing room only phenomenon at a funeral, where somebody will be there, and if you could ask the deceased who that person is, they would have no idea. If you could ask the family, they'd have no idea. But they're there because of one moment in time that individual who passed away made a difference in that somebody's life. That's right. And I call it the Elijah moment based on a story. Elijah is somebody who comes into people's lives to help them where somebody goes to a mystic and says, I want to see Elijah the prophet. And the mystic says, okay, so go to the forest. There's a widow there with her children and bring food for the weekend. And I promise you, you'll see Elijah the prophet. So he goes Friday night, Saturday, no Elijah. Sunday morning comes. He still hasn't seen Elijah the prophet, and the mystic says, I want you to go back the following week. Do the exact same thing, and I promise you, you'll see Elijah the prophet. It's Friday afternoon. He goes deep into the forest, and he's within earshot of the home, and he overhears a child crying out to the mother and saying, Mommy, where are we going to get food from for this weekend? And the mother turns to the child and says, just like Elijah came last week. Elijah is going to come again. And it's in that moment that he realizes that he is the Elijah that this woman is waiting for. And no encounter that we have in life is random. I truly believe that when I walk into a, a coffee shop and I meet somebody, or and I do this a lot, I pay it forward, that it's meant to be that that encounter, even if it's just for three seconds, I have an opportunity to share a little bit of my light with somebody else. And in those moments, God helps us spread that light in ways that we never felt possible. Our role in life isn't to think about what the end result is going to be. It's what can I do in this moment, in this encounter, just to share a little bit of light or a kind word, and then God will handle the rest, and it's amazing what will happen. That's right. And even just pulling on that on that thought, Josh, gosh, you're going to have a lot of Elijah moments at your memorial <laughs> because all those things that you're bringing up 
you know, he's probably he that's his that's that's your claim to that's your claim. That's that's the way you know he lives. Not saying that I don't like that, but just inspiring all those people that he meets in coffee shops and t- touching people's lives. He's done a lot of that in in really um, different ways. So it's just kind of cool to reflect on that. Yeah. Well, that's good. I want to hear more about your Elijah moments too. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have a Facebook page. It was going. I did a rabbi and reverend. We did our kind of joint mission to discover your Elijah moment, like the Elijah moment Facebook campaign. So people would post things on there, and um, you know, it's just interesting because people are inspired by what other people do as well to continue to think about uh, again how they can also help make the world a better place. And different ideas kind of trigger other ideas in other people as well. You just like for me, it's, you know, you, you face your fears. And one of the fears I noticed I had was to do good things to people I was afraid of. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you first start buying coffees for random people. And then I, I went to like buying groceries for people. And it's just That's like, great. it's it's fascinating to see, but they're afraid. And they're so afraid. And you're that you, afraid too at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially <laughs> in the beginning. Oh, man. That's uh, true. It was hard. But like, I come to notice that people are afraid of receiving things from other people. And it's such an amazing insight and in how we don't trust people, right? They think I'm like, there's a game I'm trying to play or I'm trying to yes, ask them for something. Yeah, that's right? true. Yeah. And it's, it's sad. And, and I'm glad you're doing the work you're doing to say that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and we just be kind to each other. And that can be a new norm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's beautiful, like everything you're saying. And, you know, let's, I want to move actually to dreams before we get cut off. And I know you have to, to go. Um, so yeah. have you ever had a dream of your mom after she passed? I would say I dream about my mom when I'm awake. How's that? Okay. You have like a waking day vision or is it just well, like... Well, what I would say her? is this. I mean, there are moments when I'm sitting at the computer or just thinking and all of a sudden something will come in my head that just like I didn't think I could think about and I'll literally look up and say, thank you. Mm. Like I'll really feel that I'm getting messages in that way. It's not like I have too many dreams. I'm maybe just so exhausted at the end of the day <laughs> that it's not like I'm a big dreamer at night. Um, from that standpoint, but I have felt her presence in like a very, kind of, I would say, you know, intimate way, just in different times and different places when I least expect it and really feel like my mom was talking to me. And sometimes I might start crying or just really feel this deep sense that I've connected with her in a way that's just a little more real than just on an everyday basis. And I felt that a lot when I was writing the book. I mean, when you read it, you'll see, I think I share a little bit where literally my soul just feels like it's connected with hers. Wow. That's so beautiful. Wow. And that, you know, like when you have those moments, I know a lot of listeners do too. It keeps you grounded, you know, like you're not alone, but also you're being watched, you know, like, and how do you want your deceased loved one to see your life unfold after the loss? Because some people it, Mm -hmm. it can crumble. A lot of people use that as strength to sort of continue to live a, a different life, a more meaningful life, as a remembrance of their loved one and what they did for them. Yeah, so, no, hundred percent for sure. So, if you could have a dream, let's say, let's say one week you're relaxed, right, and you, <laughs> and you're like, you know what, I have time to dream tonight, and so you start remembering a dream. What dream would you want to remember uh, with your mom in it? Funny you say that. I mean, I guess I saw a picture recently of my mom. It would probably be of. When I was like a little kid, like a toddler, you know, just I have dreams of taking walks with my mom. And um, I get very emotional. And I also just think of the pure, unadulterated love that a mother has for a child. And it wasn't like I wasn't a bad teenager, but I think about really my younger years. Like there's a picture that I have of my mom pushing me in a stroller when I was like three or four years old. And just kind of remembering those moments a little bit. You know, I think a lot also, my mom was a big letter writer, so I write about that too. You know, and just seeing her and feeling the hugs that I would get from her, I mean, that's probably it also. And just, when I was at, um, in my bar mitzvah, I mean, just I remember the look, the feeling that I had there with her. I mean, she showered a lot of love on me, and I, you know, I, I, any dream where I feel that love, because sometimes in the business that I'm in, it can be a lonely road. And, you know, those dreams, I think, are very comforting for me. Mm, that'd be nice. Would you want to be, since you had a couple different ages there, would you want to be a child being pushed by your mom? Or would you want to be like the age you are now? 
and she gives you love. Um, I would say probably um, now, you know, <laughs> it would be nice, you know, to have that too. Although, you know, I would say I get a lot of support. My strongest support is my wife and uh, my dad and my kids. I have good friends too. But, um, and God, I mean, I look to God every day, pray to God for strength multiple times. That's amazing. Like I've seen dreams of her dreams from people um, where God or Jesus um, or like a prophet will come with the deceased loved one um, to mm. sort of say that they're okay. And I think it were an angel or something. So I think it's amazing what dreams can do for people in mm. helping them feel love. Yeah, no, 100% for sure. Love. And so, yeah, like I think, you know, hopefully one day you can have that moment because, you know, like I, I had my own and it's just like I still haven't felt that moment awake you know like there's a moment that mm -hmm. like you can have in the, the dream world that you know like i just haven't been able to feel yet that extent of love uh, probably because i have so much you know there's so many worries and different things that are the mind's so busy you just can't sort of feel that but in the dream world like for whatever reason uh, you can so hopefully you know one day you can have one of those uh, dreams and maybe me too i'm uh, <laughs> i'm actually yeah well i would say this i'll tell you this to everybody who's listening i mean i don't think you need to be in a state of dreaming to get your deepest connections with those that you love. I really don't. I think if you find spaces in your life just to reflect and be alone and be open, I think you can feel your loved ones while you're awake, not just when you're sleeping. It's not like I'm running to have those grief dreams. I believe it deeply, deeply that every day I feel my mom's presence in an intimate way. Mm -hmm. And she's with me. And, and having a dream i mean if 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 that's what's meant to happen is 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 a yeah it'll happen another, exactly. Uh, yeah exactly is another experience but it's not required and it's not um you know a lot of people who don't have dreams feel like left out or how come i haven't had one it's it, different people connect in in different ways and one's not more important or better than than the people that have the dreams or 100%. don't have the dreams it's just another piece of the piece of the pie and i think cool like just reflecting on you know, just the thought of if, if theoretically, if I could have a dream, this is what it might look like. I just think that's a cool kind of exercise because it just allows mm -hmm. you, your mind to go to that, that spot, whether it happens or not is a, is another phenomenon altogether and, and has its own time and place. But, um, yeah. Well said. Yeah. Very cool. You know what? I've I learned so much during this episode and I Likewise. feel very intrigued to read your book and yeah, so I love some find of the references book? you mentioned too. Send them to me. The one about from the other faith about uh, the Joseph story. You had an interesting parallel. Love to hear that too. So yeah, Ramayana. So this has been good. Yes, yeah, yeah, for sure. I will send you a link for that, and you can explore that or whatever. But definitely a really cool text, a spiritual text, and a lot of insights really blew my mind. I like to expand my um, spiritual horizon so i'm always looking for other pieces of the my puzzle and so i find Sounds i find good. little gems all over the place so i will definitely forward you something on that but where can we find the book can you tell us okay that? so yeah um if you go on my website www.rabbidanielcohen.com so rabbi okay. daniel d-a-n-i-e-l cohen c-o-h-e-n.com you can find information about uh podcasts and articles and also the book as well and um yeah, no, I appreciate that and try to do a lot of speaking too. So who knows, maybe I'll be up in Canada. And when you guys come to New York or the area, let me know. Uh, we'd love to see you. Amazing. We would love If to. you guys cross the border, I don't know. But if you do, <laughs> let me know. That's the plan. That's, I'm thinking next year is uh, going to be the, uh, you know, the U.S. Oh. tour. Where we're yeah, gonna, that's right. Then by then I'll have a doctorate and be able to actually share more knowledge and, and book the venues and stuff. So, uh, yeah. Sounds uh, good. So anyone who listens, please check out the book. Um, just by talking to Daniel, you know, he seems like a really cool guy. And he has a lot of knowledge and a lot of love within him that he wants to share. So check out that stuff. And I'd love to talk to you more about the Joseph stuff because that's actually how I even first got into dreams. Because um, hmm. my my parents at the time were saying dreams were from the devil. And so I was having these dreams. I couldn't understand them. And so I really looked at Joseph and I learned how he interpreted his dreams um, and then I was able to sort of see how that related to the way my dreams were forming. And I wow. had a sort of connection from God from there. And so it was dreams that actually pulled me through my darkest days, which is, you know, we'll talk about that in another episode or another day. Um, but yeah, I'd love to chat more with you about that uh, off air. 
Sounds good. Right, cool. Sounds good. Thank you for the opportunity. No problem. All right. So for our stuff, please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. We have a newsletter there too. Subscribe. It's uh, semi-annual. And then also, if you have Facebook, you can check out the Grief Dreams Facebook group or check us out on Instagram or Twitter at Grief Dreams. You can always find this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. Click subscribe. You always get our stuff. You don't have to find us. We'll find you. <laughs> and so like we always like to say at the end of these podcasts with love and gratitude from us to you.